0: you guys are. Glad that you guys are here today. What a, what a great day to just be a part of, of a baptism Sunday and just to sing worship and to do some great things. My favorite baptism story. I just got to tell it uh, quickly. Is that it was part of this uh, part of this church that when people. This is the old days. Remember when you wanted to make some kind of commitment, you always had to walk to the front. You remember that? And they would. What they would do is when people would come forward, they would give them this little card that would basically say, you know, what are you wh- what are you, who who are you? Just so we know to make sure we kn- get your name right. And what do you want to do? Like, do you need prayers or do you need help or counseling or do you want to be baptized? And there was this uh, uh, older lady who came forward one week and she looked at the person who was standing there and says, I'd like to be baptized. So he gave her a card. And while the church is still singing away and doing all this stuff, and she starts filling out the card. And then she looks up and she just looks really confused. And she goes, is this the – and he's like, yes, just, just, just go ahead and fill that card out. Just fill that card out. And she kind of looks down again, and she looks up again, and she looks down again, and she looks up again. She's really, really confused, like, why, what, is, what is going on right here? Well, it comes to his attention that obviously there's has bit, bit, a bit of a miscommunication. And un- accidentally, he has handed her one of the upcoming student event cards, and the first question is, can you swim? Why that was important on that day, who knows? But, uh, <laughs> but that's, what it, that's what it was. Uh, we're in this, in this series called Say What, and what we're doing is we're looking at Bible verses uh, that might be a little different or things that maybe we've never seen before. And even today, may- maybe you're not a regular churchgoer, or maybe you're not a person that really has ever gone to church, and you came today to support your family or a friend, and you watched us dunk people underwater, and you think, now what on earth is going on here? Why is this such a big deal? Why is this so important? And we're going to talk a little bit about this practice of baptism today. But before we do that, I want us to always be honest about where we're coming from. And if we talk about, I want us to answer this question or kind of at least give some voice to this question of how do we read the Bible? Uh, when you read the Bible, people say, well, that's fairly easy. You pick it up and you start reading. But we also read it in a particular time, in a particular place, with a com- particular world view. And when we read the Bible, sometimes we, some things don't look right to us because we don't live in the world that the Bible was written in. Now, also, one of the things we need to do before we read the Bible is we need to recognize what we call our confirmation bias. What that means is we will tend as people to find what we are looking for. And sometimes when we read the Bible, we just kind of stop at verses that we already know or verses that we already like, and we read them and sort of in our minds say, I got it, I understand that, let's move on. The same is true, for instance, if you went to a restaurant a restaurant that you had a bad experience at. You ever, you ever had that experience and everything's bad and then you leave and you say words like, we will never come back here again. And then you have some friends who invite you and say, hey, let's go to this restaurant. And so you agree because you like your friends or don't like your friends, whichever reason why you go to this restaurant. If you've had a bad experience and you go in with that perception, guess what? You'll probably tend to have another bad experience well, you know, the waiter didn't take our order quick enough and my food was cold and, you know, they didn't fill up our water glasses and they didn't clear our plates at the right time, you will tend to find what's bad, but if you go on the other side of it to a restaurant that you had a great experience at, you generally will overlook all those things because you just had, you want to have a good experience. And sometimes when we read the Bible, what we do is we kind of go to one of those camps immediately before we actually allow it to speak and so we have to really fight against that sometimes, not just to confirm everything that we've heard in our lives. Uh, if you are a part of our theology class, one of the things that we're going to talk about is uh, how do we know or how do we really know what we know? Uh, this fancy philosophical word called epistemic virtue, which basically means the word epistemic just means how we know things. Uh, are we honest about how we know? We live in a world that people say, well, that's just how it is or that's just what I believe. And, and we've got to also... Stop for a second and say, how did we get to where we are? This next one's one that we all struggle with. We've got to avoid doing what I call one-verse theology. The Bible is a collection of these 66 books that tells us a story of God. And sometimes, because we want something to mean something, we'll find one obscure verse to mean what we want it to mean. That's dangerous. Because the Bible does have context, and the Bible is a big book, and, and sometimes if something's really important, it's probably going to be said more than once. There's very few things in the Bible that are said once that are core and central to what we should believe as people. If it only says it once, it doesn't mean that it's unimportant, but it just means we have to see that in light of other things as well. And maybe the biggest reason here today is we've got to avoid seeking minimum requirement now we live in a time where people seem obsessed with doing as little as they can and still saying that they've done it. When it comes to faith, I think we should be on the opposite end of the spectrum. We shouldn't be saying, okay, how little do I have to do to express my faith? We really should be saying, what are all the things that I can do to express my faith? If you wanna be a minimum requirement dad or a minimum requirement spouse, or a minimum requirement employee, those things are going to show over time. And we need to stop this way of thinking that says, how little can I do and still actually have done it? Now, when we look at the Bible, we've got to realize that the Bible leads us to truth, not just facts. There are a lot of facts in the Bible. There are a lot of things in the Bible that, that tell us, that lead us. Wow, I didn't know that before, and that's amazing. But the ultimate goal of Scripture is not to lead us to get more facts or more knowledge. It's meant to lead us towards something that we call truth. When John writes his gospel, at the end of his gospel, he tells us his thesis statement, if you will. He tells us why he has written this book. In John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, he says, Jesus performed many signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these have been written down So that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The Bible is telling us, John is telling us, I'm not just giving you stories so you can check a box. I'm telling you stories so that you can see who Jesus is and you can believe in him. Because when you believe in Jesus, you will find something called life. And that's why he wants us to to read this book, or he wants us to engage in this. Maybe another way to say it is this. The Bible leads us to choices, not answers. If you read the Bible, the goal is not that you get smarter. The goal is that you fall in love with God. It's not that you can go, hey, I know more about the Bible than you do. It's about saying, I see God. It's meant to lead us something relational, not just intellectual. The Bible is intellectual, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of facts and there's a lot of answers in there, but the ultimate goal is not for us to just be smarter. Not for us to just go, I get it. And incidentally, I will, I will tell you this. I've been a pastor for over 20 years, and there's a lot of things that I do not know. I, I, we're going to talk about baptism today, and I'm going to share some of that with you. But if you ask me, how does God actually save you? I don't know. Because I'm not God. And there's some mystery in this. I don't know how God can wash away sin. I don't know how God can save any of us. If somebody says, I know exactly how God saves us, you need to run and hold on to your wallet. Okay? Because we just don't know. Because I'm not God, you're not God, but we try to follow in obedience. And we, we make choices based on what we see. This is not... A final exam, where it's yes or no on everything, and it's like, well, you either, either pass or you fail. It's about choices that we make and people that we become, and that's ultimately what, uh, what what God is on about when he writes and gives us this book. Now, last week, for those of you that missed it, a thrilling episode about circumcision, and uh, this week, we're talking about baptism. And there's kind of a path from the Old Testament to the New Testament from the covenant of circumcision to what is now the covenant of baptism. What we know is that both of these things are one-time covenant moments. You only have to do them once. Hopefully, uh, I don't need to go into more detail than that, but hopefully you only have to do these things once. And part of it is, is not because a lot of people are baptized when they're younger and they say, but I've done a lot of things in my life and I've changed things. Otherwise, we're going to get baptized every five, six weeks because we feel like uh, you know we, we, we've done something wrong. We're going to talk about what this ultimately is and why we do it. It is a moment that is kind of uh, singular in time in our lives, but it has effects uh, over all the rest of our lives. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Today we're talking about baptism, and it's part one of two, because this is such a big topic, you can't do it in one week. And I, I will confess to you, I probably, if I was a bit smarter, I should have preached this lesson last week in preparation for this week. Because generally what we do is we schedule baptisms, we do it. We used to in the old days, have a baptistry that was always full, and people could spontaneously respond, but nobody ever did. People, I mean, they used to, but then they stopped doing it, and everybody scheduled, scheduled it, and then we all wear the same t-shirts, and we make it into kind of a big event. So what we're going to do is this. After we talk about it this week and next week as well, if you have never made this commitment, we're going to leave this baptistry up and have another Baptism Sunday next week, uh, because that's kind of my bad. We should have done this earlier. But also, some people can't be here every single Sunday. And we sort of talked about it as a staff and said, you know what, let's do it again next week. So if you, at the end of this, say, I really want to do this. This is something I've never done or this is, you know, a big moment for me. Just come and talk to one of us that has these shirts on. We'll make sure you get on the schedule for next week. If you want to do it today, we'll do it after the service. We don't mind at all. Uh, Whatever it takes for you guys to participate in that, we want to be honoring of that But let's uh, let's ask this question as we talk about baptism. Where did we come from, from our various churches? Some of us grew up in churches where parents sprinkle their babies, and then at about 14 or 15, they go through this teaching called catechism. It's all that that means, catechism, teaching. And then they are confirmed, and and usually if you were part of a Methodist or Lutheran or something like that, that's the process you went through. Uh, Some others uh, are seeker-driven churches that basically they say you just accept the Lord Jesus is your personal Lord and Savior, and that's it, and you're done, and now you just walk this life. And then there's other movements, like one that I came from that I'll talk about in just a minute, where we baptized people as well. And so I want to recognize that not all of us had exactly the same history, maybe in our lives or maybe with our parents or with our churches or with our faith. But the word baptism, or the Greek word baptizo, uh, is a word that means to dip or wash or immerse. That's the way that it is correctly translated. in there. You can see the word it's what we call a transliteration which is a fancy word to say. It sounds like the original word so we'll just choose that word. But the word baptism, some of the meaning has been lost over the years because we don't quite know what that means. Does it mean to sprinkle? No, there is a word for sprinkle. It means to dip or wash or immerse. Now, this is simple and symbolic. Let me tell you what I mean by that. When you're kids come home at the end of the day. Can we all just agree that children stink? I mean, metaphorically, literally, I mean, all of it, okay? We tell them to bathe, right? And then we have to go through, you guys have to do this? We need you to go take a shower. What that means is you're going to turn the shower on. You're going to use soap because getting wet is not enough, okay? And you are going to, scr- I mean, w- we go through this. Uh, I think it's a word we should start using. You at home when your kids come, go baptize yourself. Go, go and baptize. Go baptize yourself. It, that's what it means. You you literally wash. You wash away the day. You wash away the sweat. You you, you have a moment where you become new. It also represents the same way. Have you ever, if we had a white, if I had a white shirt here and I had a bucket of dye and I did I did this and fully, immer- it would become a blue shirt. Right. That's what would happen. That's what it means to dip, just like this, or ultimately to immerse. And it has significance for physical uh, you know, dirt as well as being symbolically unclean. But asking ourselves, where did baptism come from? Maybe some of the historical questions. Where This is not something that we invented. We didn't get together as a church and say, hey, we think it would be really cool to dunk people underwater. It, it, it has significance that comes from a long time ago, even predates Jesus, even predates. I mean, it, it's such an old thing that happens in the Jewish faith. It's what we call the mitzvahs. Of the Jewish faith. Just kidding. <laughs> the mitzvahs of the Jewish of the Jewish faith, um, which basically mean the washings. You've heard the word bar mitzvah and bat mitzvah for boys and girls when they when they become about uh, they turn about twelve years old and they go through their process. We see Jesus going through this if you read the Gospels as well. But mitzvahs were the washing ceremony. Do you remember when in the Old Testament? If you touched a dead body, you were unclean for seven days. It means you couldn't go into the temple, and you really couldn't be around people. The reason why they did that wasn't because they hated people, but disease was rampant. And so if you handled a dead body, they felt that seven days was long enough to know if you were sick from that dead body. But after those seven days, you would go to the temple, and the temple was often surrounded by these pools. We see Jesus does a lot of his healings at the pools around the temple. And after after seven days, you would symbolically go and be immersed in water to represent that you are now clean and you were allowed to go into the temple. If you were a Gentile who decided that you wanted to practice Jewish faith, you became what they called a proselyte. What that meant was you gave your old life away. They would baptize them before they were allowed in the temple. Even for women who go through a 28-day cycle every month. After that that time has passed, they would be baptized, washed, and then allowed to go into the temple. It represented putting off that which is unclean. It was before I entered into covenant with God, before I went in, I, I, I would participate in this and be a part of it. Jesus talks about this early in his ministry. He has a conversation with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And if we pick up the story in John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was part of the Jewish ruling council. That means that he is a higher up. He knows the Jewish faith. He has seen these things his entire career. He came to Jesus and not at night and says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher. That has come from God. Because nobody could perform the things that you're doing if God was not with him. Jesus said, very truly, I tell you that no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Reborn is really the language that he's using. How can anybody be born again a second time? Am I supposed to you know, climb into my mother's womb? Yeah, that's gross. Jesus says, very truly, I tell you that no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, covenant of circumcision, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit, the covenant of baptism. You should not be surprised at me saying you must be born again. Those words were not lost on Nicodemus because he understood that in order to enter into the presence of God, there was this process of being reborn in in, in these mitzvahs, in these washings. So when we talk about circumcision to baptism. We're talking about the rebirth into covenant and into community. In the older days, you might have gone to a church where people said, well, you got saved when you, when you professed Jesus as Lord, but you got added to the church when you were baptized. That's actually not a, a, an incorrect statement, because what it's really saying is when you are immersed in the story of God and you follow him in obedience, you will now be in community with people who are immersed in that same story. We see Jesus in Matthew chapter 3 that he follows in baptism. Remember, Jesus was a practicing Jew. Jesus made sacrifices. Jesus went and was mitzvahed. He was baptized into the community of faith and then read the scrolls in the temple. And now he is 30 years old and he's about to embark on a, on a ministry, not to, not to wash away his past, but to use that as the foundation for what he will do. And what we see, it says this, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John, the, to be mitzvah by John into this new thing. That's what the text literally says. But John tried to deter him. I need to be baptized by you, and now you come to me? Because the thinking of this Jewish, I, I can't come into the presence of God. I need to be washed clean before I do that. It, this is the wrong way around. And Jesus says, let it be so. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented it says as soon as jesus was baptized and he came up out of the water there's your immersion immersion language at that very moment the heavens were opened the dove descends and lands on jesus and then the voice from heaven says this is my son whom i love in him i'm well there's so many examples in scripture about this and we're going to look at a few more this week and next week but one of the things that we have to stop doing in church is we need to avoid self-serving answers. We all do this. Uh, we like to come to church, and I confirm everything you already believe, because that's what we think church is supposed to be, and it's not. Part of that. But part of it is for us to really step more deeply into our faith. And the stuff that we, we do with a bit more rigor seems to stick a little better. We've got to stop doing one verse theology in our lives. I've heard people say when we talk about baptism or well, conversations that I've had, they'll say, they'll quote verses like Acts two twenty one. We're gonna talk more about Acts two next week. But Acts two twenty one it says, And anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It doesn't say anything about baptism in that text. And you're right, it doesn't. It says it about thirteen verses later. Or well, people will say, Well what about the Acts sixteen version with the Philippian jailer while the apostles are in prison and then there's a loud earthquake and And, and, you know, everything kind of changes in that moment. And then he says, well, what am I supposed to do now? How am I going to live into this faith? And they respond in Acts 16 by saying, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. But if we blow up the scripture a little bit more and we read the context of these two sides, Acts 16 starts to take on a different meaning. It says, they replied, yes, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to his family. And at that moment, he takes them and he cleans their wounds, and it says, and then immediately he and his household were baptized. These things, uh, baptism and belief, are often not very far apart. They talk about them in context of each other, and I don't quite always understand why we're trying to fight for one side of this only and saying, well, this is all that matters. I'm going to tell you where I came from personally. Uh, in in church, I was part of a church. I was part of a movement. My parents were they're they're God fearing people, and uh, but but our theology around baptism and salvation ultimately was what I call very momentary. Meaning, it was all about the moment. And I think in a lot of churches we preach, "This is the moment that we're saved. This is the moment we're saved." Uh, I had a I had a <laughs> I had a, uh, um, a friend. I had a lot of church. I have a lot of church friends. Had a lot of friends growing up when you're kind of going through seminary and you're learning about you know how to deal with all these things or talk about all these things and um, I, I grew up in churches of Christ which which baptism was the moment that you were saved that's what that's what I was taught my whole life and he was taught um, you know baptism is the moment that you believe and, and pray that's what he was taught and we kind of argued back and forth uh, because we're just kind of if there's five steps we were step you know four he was step three uh, we still all did exactly the same things we just like to argue about it so he, I remember one day, he said to me, so he's a good Baptist, and he says to me, you know, baptism is not essential for people to be saved. And I looked at him, and I said, well, then maybe you need to change the name of your church. Um, just a joke, we were good friends, don't worry. Uh, but, but people argue about this, and, and, and I came from a place that said, it's all about the moment. It's all about the moment. In fact, one of the questions that was asked in our tradition was, do you have to be baptized to be saved? And we treated this like a yes or no question. And we said, this is the line in the sand for us. What we're really asking is, when is a person saved? And what, what I learned over my own discovery and study of Scripture is that that question is actually a bad question because we never ask it anywhere else. We never say, how much do you have to go to church to be saved? How much do you have to read the Bible to be saved? How much do you have to give to be saved? How much do you have to volunteer? How much do you have to know? How many people do you need to lead to, lead to Christ to show that you're saved. We didn't ask that question anywhere else. It was kind of a false question, but it was a question that affirmed what we already believe. People ask me all the time, is salvation a process or a moment? Yes. Our faith is filled with pivotal moments where we make decisions. And there's also an unfolding of our faith. I believe people are as saved as they're ever going to be the day that that happens. But I believe it takes us a lifetime to understand the mystery of how God saves us and what God saves us from. I'm still learning what it means to be saved. And some days I really think I've got it, and other days I really think I've missed it. And you probably feel the same way. So let me, let, me, let me mention five things. I know we're going a little longer today. We're not going to go too much longer, I promise. So just stay with me for about five minutes. Number one is this. Baptism is not a new tradition. It's not something the church invented. It's not something I invented. It's not something that even the bu- This is something that has been around for thousands of years, and it has significance. And we need to spend a little bit of time understanding where this practice has come from. The second thing is this. Belief and baptism go together. It's not an either or. It's both and. And I think in church sometimes we try to argue about something that we're, that we're all going to do anyway. If you are a person who believes, you will follow the practices of obedience in Christ. It's going to be different for every one of us in this room because we are different. But when Jesus stands with his disciples at the end of the Gospel of Mark, he tells them, he says, go into all the world and preach the Gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. And I've heard people, oh, it doesn't say if you believe but you're not baptized. Well, it, I think he's saying if you don't believe the story, then you're not going to practice any of these things. Jesus, as well, he says, listen, these things go together. Belief that happens in our heart is enacted through action. We use our hands and our feet and our bodies to represent what we believe in God. This is why I think the the immersion is the better translation of the of the ancient word. Because baptism, the the meaning kind of gets lost, but immersion is about my life is immersed in the story of God, and so everything that I do will be immersed in that story as well. Uh, Number three is this. Baptism is about obedience and righteousness. The Bible talks about it prolifically. That says it's an act of obedience. We do it because we're trying to follow Jesus. We do it because it's the right thing to do. We don't argue about, well, why do I have to do this? I think that's a bad perspective to have. We are obedient in this act, and it, it really is an act of righteousness. That's what we see in the story of Jesus. Uh, maybe number four is this. Baptism is symbolic. Listen, there's not, we didn't put anything in the water. Nothing magic about the water. And if you ask me honestly and say, how does dunking somebody underwater save them? How does dunking somebody underwater allow them to be obedient? My answer to you is, I don't know. The Bible tells us that it's meant to be representative of a death and a burial and a resurrection because we don't go to the place where Jesus hung on the cross or go and see the tomb that he laid in, which this represents. It's a death symbol. But it says when we die to ourselves, when we wash away the dirt, when we wash away the past life, we're able to be resurrected with Jesus in a new way, just the way that he was. That's why when Paul writes Romans, Romans 6, verses 1 through 4, He says to them, what shall we say? Shall we keep on sinning so that grace can increase? Absolutely not. We have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And then he reminds them, or don't you know that those of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. It's a moment, It's a covenant moment that says the old is gone and the new is here. And even when Peter writes to the early church in First Peter chapter three, he gives them this image and this symbol, he says uh, he says, "For Christ has suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. to bring you to God. To, to close that gap is what he's saying. He was put to death in the body, but he was made alive in the spirit. And after being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently as the ark was being built. It's only a few people, eight people in all, who were saved through water. And that water now symbolizes baptism which saves you. Not not the removal of dirt from your body. This isn't a bath. It's a pledge of a clean conscience towards God. It saves you because of the resurrection of Jesus. The last thing today is baptism helps us better understand the Lord's Supper. Maybe the communion, the Eucharist, whatever you hold it in whatever church you've been to. Baptism is about death and burial and resurrection, ours. The Lord's Supper is about death, burial, and resurrection, his. When we participate in baptism, it is the combining of these two worlds, ours and his. When we take the Lord's Supper, the bread, which represents body and the blood, the cup which represents the blood of Jesus. We're accepting that. When we, when we take the Lord's Supper, when we take the bread, we take it into our lives and we say, I accept the sacrifice of Jesus and I will lay my life down sacrificially for others. When we drink the cup, I, I receive the blood of Jesus that washes away my sin and in turn, I will now live in a way that pours out for the sake of others. Some, some uh, traditions have a different view. They, they believe that when someone prays over these elements, these, these things, that they actually become the body and the blood of Christ in spirit. And I've always kind of liked that. I know it's just crackers and juice. I get it. But the, but the, the point was this the more that we take in the body and the blood of Christ into our lives, the more that we should be thankful for what we have been saved from, and the more that we should be willing to become Jesus. In theory, the more that we eat this, the more that we share in this, the more that we become like him, which is ultimately the goal. And so today we're going to have a moment where we share in the Lord's Supper together. If you've not been here before, don't worry. These are nice little self-serving. Just grab one. Uh, one side has, has bread. One side has cup. It's all sealed. It's all sterilized and safe and baptized. I don't, I don't know what we did with it. Um, but this is just a moment, a moment for you to receive, a moment for you to receive God's love, God's blessing, to maybe remember your own baptism. This is why in the old days, only the baptized believers were the ones that would take this because they were really the only ones who fully understand, understood what it was about. That it was about the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. And the same way that we participated in that, we participate in this. And we share in the body and blood of Jesus. And it changes us, makes us whole. Now I know today we've talked about baptism and we're going to end with communion today and we're going to talk about this a little bit more. But I want to encourage you. If you have never made the commitment to be baptized, what are you waiting for? If you're deciding in your faith, I really want this to be real, this is what that's all about. Maybe your life has gone down an awful path, and you say, I really need to be washed clean of a past life, and I want to step into covenant with God. This is for you. Maybe you did it when you were really young, and everybody else was doing it at camp, and you're... You're kind of unsure. Did I really do it for the right reasons? Did I do it in the right way? I always encourage people. God, God never seems to punish people <laughs> who are ignorant. Otherwise, let's be honest, we'd all be punished all the time. But God creates symbols, simple symbols, things that you could do in the ocean, things that you could do in, the pond, in a pond, things that you could do in a swimming pool, things that you can do in a trough on a Sunday morning at a church. It's so accessible to all of us to step into this covenant and commitment. And as we share today in the body and blood of Jesus that represents the death, burial, and resurrection, may we have the courage to follow. So Father, today, just thank you for meeting us in this place. Uh, Thank you for the grace of these people, because I preached a little longer than usual. But God, thank you that we just get to be a part of something that you invite us into your presence. God, as we have people down front, as April and Christy are down front, that maybe somebody wants to pray with someone. Maybe there's something in our lives that we want to give, give up or lay down. Father, I just pray that while we have this time of communion with you, if we are convicted, that we will uh, not just leave with conviction, but that we will, we will do something about it. If, Father, if we want to respond to you, in the song, if we want to respond to you, whatever we want to do, may we not leave this place today without affirming that you are our God, that we desperately want to be in relationship with you. Father, please bless us today as we share in the body and the blood of Jesus, as it symbolizes powerful things in our lives, God. Would you allow us to receive this with joy and gratitude and humility today? pray this all through Jesus.